Book Two, Chapter Ten of The Fatal Three by Mary Elizabeth Braddon. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Ten, A Wrecked Life. Monsieur Leroy was interested in his visitor and in no wise hastened her departure. He led her through the garden of the asylum, anxious that she should see that sad life of the shattered mind in its milder aspect. The quieter patients were allowed to amuse themselves at liberty in the garden, and here Mildred saw the woman who fancied herself the Blessed Virgin, and who sat apart from the rest with a crown of withered anemones upon her iron-gray locks. The doctor stooped to talk to her in the Niçois language, describing her hallucination to Mildred in his broken English between whiles. "'She is one of my oldest cases, and mild as a lamb,' he said. "'She is what superstition had made her.' She might have been a happy wife and mother, but for that fatal influence. Ah, here comes a lady of a very different temper, and not half so easy a subject. A woman of about sixty advanced towards them along the dusty gravel path between the trampled grass and the dust-whitened orange trees, a woman who carried her head and shoulders with the pride of an empress, and who looked about her with defiant eyes, fanning herself with a large Japanese paper fan as she came along a fan of vivid scarlet and cheap gilt paper, which seemed to intensify the brightness of her great black eyes as she waved it to and fro before her haggard face, a woman who must have once been beautiful. Would you believe that lady was prima donna at La Scala nearly forty years ago? asked the doctor as he and Mildred stood beside the path, watching that strange figure with its theatrical dignity. The massive plates of grizzled black hair were wound coronet-wise about the woman's head, her rusty black velvet gown trailed in the dust, threadbare long ago, almost in tatters to-day, a gown of a strange fashion which had been worn upon the stage, Leonora's or Lucretia's gown, perhaps, once upon a time. At sight of the physician she stopped suddenly and made him a sweeping curtsy with all the exaggerated grace of the theatre. "'Do you know if they open this month at the Scala?' she asked in Italian. "'Indeed, my dear,' I have heard nothing of their doings. They might have begun their season with the new year, she said with a dictatorial air. They always did in my time. Of course you know that they have tried to engage me again. They wanted me for Amina, but I had to remind them that I am not a light soprano. When I reappear it shall be as Lucretia Borgia. There I stand on my own ground. No one can touch me there. She sang the opening bars of Lucretia's first Senna. The once glorious voice was rough and discordant, but there was power in the tones even yet, and real dramatic fire in the midst of exaggeration. Suddenly, while she was singing, she caught the expression of Mildred's face watching her, and she stopped at a breath, and grasped the stranger by both hands with an excited air. "'That moves you, does it not?' she exclaimed. "'You have a soul for music. I can see that in your face.' I should like to know more of you. Come and see me whenever you like, and I will sing to you. The doctor lets me use his piano sometimes when he is in a good humor. Say rather when you are reasonable, my good Maria, said Monsieur Leroy, laying a fatherly hand on her shoulder. There are days when you are not to be trusted. I am to be trusted today. Let me come to your room and sing to her, pointing to Mildred with her fan. I like her face. She has the eyes and lips that console. Her husband is lucky to have such a wife. Let me sing to her. I want her to understand what kind of woman I am. Would it bore you too much to indulge her, madame? 
asked the doctor in an undertone. She is a strange creature, and it will wound her if you refuse. She does not often take a fancy to anyone, but she frequently takes dislikes, and those are violent. I shall be very happy to hear her, answered Mildred. I am in no hurry to return to Nice. The doctor led the way back to his house, the singer talking to Mildred with an excited air as they went, talking of the day when she was first soprano at Milan. Everybody envied me my success, she said. There were those who said I owed everything to him, that he made my voice and my style. Lies, madame, black and bitter lies. I won all the prizes at the conservatoire. He was one master among many. I owed him nothing, nothing, nothing. She reiterated the word with acrid emphasis and an angry furl of her fan. And now you are beginning the old strain, said the doctor with a good-humoured shrug of his shoulders. If this goes on, there shall be no piano for you today. I will have no grievances. Grievances are the bane of social intercourse. If you come to my salon, it must be to sing, not to reopen old sores. We all have our wounds as well as you, signorina, but we keep them covered up. I am dumb, said the singer meekly. They went into the doctor's private room. Three sides of the room were lined with books, chiefly of a professional or scientific character. A cottage piano stood in a recess by the fireplace. The woman flew to the instrument with a rapturous eagerness and began to play. Her hands were faintly tremulous with excitement, but her touch was that of a master as she played the symphony to the finale of La Cenarantola. "'Has she no piano in her own room?' asked Mildred in a whisper. "'No, poor soul. She is one of our pauper patients. The state provides for her, but it does not give her a private room or a piano.' I let her come here two or three times a week for an hour or so, when she is reasonable. Mildred wondered if it would be possible for her, as a stranger, to provide a room and a piano for this friendless enthusiast. She would have been glad out of her abundance to have lightened a suffering sister's fate, and she determined to make the proposition to the doctor. The singer played snatches of familiar music, Rossini, Donizetti, Bellini, operatic airs which Mildred knew by heart. She wandered from one Sena to another, and her voice, though it had lost its sweetness and sustaining power, was still brilliantly flexible. She sang with a rapturous unconsciousness of her audience, Mildred and the doctor sitting quietly at each side of the hearth, where a single pine log smouldered on the iron dogs above a heap of white ashes. Presently the music changed to a gayer, lighter strain, and she began an airy cavatina, all coquetry and grace. That joyous melody was curiously familiar to Mildred's ear. "'Where did I hear that music?' she said aloud. "'It seems as if it were only the other day, "'and yet it is nearly two years since I was at the opera.' "'The singer left the cavatina unfinished "'and wandered into another melody. "'Ah, I know now,' exclaimed Mildred. "'That is Paolo Castellani's music.' "'The woman started up from the piano "'as if the name had wounded her. "'Paolo Castellani,' she cried. "'What do you know of Paolo Castellani?' Dr. Leroy went over to her and laid his hand upon her shoulder heavily. "'Now we are in for a scene,' he muttered to Mildred. "'You have mentioned a most unlucky name.' "'What has she to do with Signor Castellani?' "'He was her cousin. He trained her for the stage, and she was the original in several of his operas. She was his slave, his creature, and lived only to please him. I suppose she expected him to marry her, poor soul. But he knew better than that.' 
he contrived to fascinate a French girl, a consumptive, who was travelling in Italy for her health with a wealthy father. He married the Frenchwoman, and I believe that marriage broke Maria's heart. The singer had seated herself at the piano again and was playing with rapid and brilliant finger, running up and down the keys in wild excitement. Mildred and the physician were standing by the window, talking in lowered voices, unheeded by Maria Castellani. Was it that event which wrecked her mind? asked Mildred, deeply interested. No, it was some years afterwards that her brain gave way. She had a brilliant career before her at the time of Castellani's desertion, and she bore the blow with the courage of a Roman. So long as her voice lasted and the public were constant to her, she contrived to bear up against that burning sense of wrong which has been the distinguishing note of her mind ever since she came here. But the first breath of failure froze her. She felt her voice decaying while she was comparatively a young woman. Her glass told her that she was losing her beauty, that she was beginning to look old and haggard. Her managers told her more. They gave her the cold shoulder and put newer singers above her head. Then despair took hold of her. She became gloomy and irritable, difficult and capricious in her dealings with her fellow artists. And then came the end, and she was brought here. She had saved no money. She had been reckless even beyond the habits of her profession. She was friendless. There was nobody interested in her fate. Not even Signor Castellani? Castellani, Paolo Castellani, Pussy Bette. The man was a compound of selfishness and treachery. She was not likely to get pity from him. The very fact that he had used her badly made her loathsome to him. I doubt if he ever inquired what became of her. If anyone had asked him about her, he would have said that she had dropped through. A worn-out voice, a faded beauty. Que voulez-vous? She had no other friends, no ties. None. She was an orphan at twelve years old without a sou. Castellani paid for her education and traded on her talent. He trained her to sing in his own operas, and in that light fanciful music she was at her best, though it is her delusion now that she excelled in the grand style. I believe he absorbed the greater part of her earnings until they quarreled. Sometime after his marriage there was a kind of reconciliation between them. She appeared in a new opera, his last and worst. Her voice was going, his talent had begun to fail. It was the beginning of the end. Has Signor Castellani's son shown no interest in this poor creature's fate? No, the son lives in England, I believe, for the most part. I doubt if he knows anything about Maria. The singer had reverted to that familiar music. She sang the first part of an aria, a melody disguised with overmuch fioratura, light, graceful, unmeaning. That is in his last opera, she said, rising from the piano with a more rational air. The opera was almost a failure, but I was applauded to the echo. His genius had forsaken him. Follies, follies, falsehoods, crimes. He could not be true to anyone or anything. He was as false to his wife as he had been false to me, and to his proud young English signorina. Ah, well, who can doubt that he lied to her? She fell into a meditative mood, standing by the piano, touching a note now and then. Young and handsome and rich. Would she have accepted degradation with open eyes? No, no, no. He lied to her as he had lied to me. He was made up of lies. Her eyes grew troubled, and her lips worked convulsively. Again the doctor laid his strong, broad hand upon her shoulder. Come, Maria, he said in Italian, enough for today. 
Madame has been pleased with your singing. Yes, indeed, Signora. You have a noble voice. I should be very glad if I could do anything to be of use to you. If I could contribute to your comfort in any way. Oh, Maria is happy enough with us, I hope, said the doctor cheerily. We are all fond of her when she is reasonable. But it is time she went to her dinner. Arrivederci, Signora. Maria accepted her dismissal with a good grace, saluted Mildred and the doctor with her stage curtsy, and withdrew. One side of Monsieur Leroy's house opened into the garden, the other into a courtyard adjoining the high road. Poor soul, I should be so glad to pay for a piano and a private sitting-room for her, if I might be allowed to do so, said Mildred when the singer was gone. You are too generous, madame, but I doubt if it would be good for her to accept your bounty. She enjoys the occasional use of my piano intensely. If she had one always at her command, she would give up her life to music, which exercises too strong an influence upon her disordered brain to be indulged in at libitum. Nor would a private apartment be an advantage in her case. She is too much given to brooding over past griefs, and the society of her fellow sufferers, the friction and movement of the public life, are good for her. What did she mean by her talk of an English girl? Some story of wrongdoing? Was it all imaginary? I believe there was some scandal at Milan, some flirtation or possibly an intrigue between Castellani and one of his English pupils, but I never heard the details. Maria's jealousy would be likely to exaggerate the circumstances, for I believe she adored her cousin to the last, long after she knew that he had never cared for her except as an element in his success. Mildred took leave of the doctor after thanking him for his politeness. She left a handful of gold for the benefit of the poor patients, and left Dr. Leroy under the impression that she was one of the sweetest women he had ever met. Her pensive beauty, her low and musical voice, the clear and resolute purpose of every word and look, were in his mind indications of the perfection of womanhood. It is not often that nature achieves such excellence, mused the doctor. It is a pity that perfection should be short-lived, yet I cannot prognosticate length of years for this lady. Pamela's spirits were decidedly improving. She talked all dinner-time, and gave a graphic description of her afternoon in the tennis-court behind the Cercle de la Méditerranée. "'I am to see the clubhouse some morning before the members begin to arrive,' she said. "'It is a perfectly charming club. There is a theatre which serves as a ballroom on grand occasions. There is to be a dance next week, and Lady Lochinvar will chaperone me, if you don't mind.' "'I shall be most grateful to Lady Lochinvar, dear.' Believe me, if I am a hermit, I don't want to keep you in melancholy seclusion. I am very glad for you to have pleasant friends. Mrs. Murray is delightful. She begged me to call her Jessie. She is going to take me for a drive before lunch tomorrow, and we are to do some shopping in the afternoon. The shops here are simply lovely. Almost as nice as Brighton. Better. They have more chic. And I am told they are twice as dear. Was Mr. Stewart at the tennis court? Yes, he plays there every afternoon when he is not at Monte Carlo. That does not sound like a very useful existence. Perhaps you will say he is an adventurer, exclaimed Pamela with a flash of temper, and then repenting in a moment she added, I beg your pardon, aunt, but you are really wrong about Mr. Stewart. He looks after Lady Lochinvar's estate. He is invaluable to her. But he cannot do much for the estate when he is playing tennis here or gambling at Monte Carlo. Oh, but he does. He answers no end of letters every morning. Lady Lochinvar says he is a most wonderful young man. He attends to her house accounts here. 
i am afraid she would be very extravagant if she were not well looked after she has no idea of business mr stuart has even to manage her dressmakers then one may suppose he is really useful even at nice has he any means of his own or is he entirely dependent on his aunt oh he has an income of his own a modest income mrs murray says hardly enough for him to get along easily in a cavalry regiment but quite enough for him as a civilian and his aunt will leave him everything his expectations are splendid well pamela i will not call him an adventurer and i shall be pleased to make his acquaintance if he will call upon me he is dying to know you may mrs murray bring him to tea to-morrow afternoon with pleasure end of chapter ten end of book two